I'm Michael Foster. And I'm Non Tennant. And you're listening to It's Good to Be Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. What are we talking about today, Michael? Talking, Non? We're not talking. No, we're going to listen to scripture scream about sexuality. So here's what's going on. Apparently, um, the SBC has a new president. I don't know too much about how the Southern Baptist Convention works, but they have a president who tells a bunch of uh, independent churches what they can do. I don't know. Like they're, uh, I thought they're all about autonomy. Nonetheless, this guy Ed Litton or Littleton or I don't know what his name is. He said God whispers about sexuality. And a lot of us who care about that topic remember J.D. Greer, who's the former SBC president, saying something very much like that just a couple of years ago. Well, so then there's this in, this huge scandal. Apparently, this guy, this new S- SBC president, he pulled 140 sermons off YouTube because uh, he was plagiarizing large portions of his sermons word for word. In other words, he wasn't doing the work he was paid to do as a pastor. He was just taking someone else's work. It's one thing to be inspired by someone. It's another thing to do word for word, tell their, tell their stories. Like it's like your stories or whatever. But um, it brought up this whole topic of, of God whispering about sexuality, which is um, something that you kind of pick up from Amy bird. Sometimes if you uh, suffer any, any of her writings and, um, Right here on the east side of Cincinnati, Joe Thorne came out here, I think it was two years ago, to do a men's conference. And I'm an acquaintance there with some former members there. And at that men's conference, he right at the beginning of his sermon, he said that scripture doesn't really focus on sexuality as much as it focuses on being being a Christian, being a mature Christian or whatever. This uh, course is complete fiction and not true at all and makes you wonder if any of these people ever read the Bible. So we're going to talk to you about how sexuality is central to the story of scripture and how scripture screams about it. Number one, sexuality is central in the creation and design of mankind. So to belong to mankind, according to Genesis 1.27, is to be male or female. No one is androgynous. No one is sexless. Um, I know there might be some person listening that thinks, what about the intersex? What about hermaphrodites or something like that? Well, of course, that's not normal. Um, the, uh, true uh, hermaphrodites are exceedingly rare. There's usually one set of sexual organs that is much more predominant. Uh, and usually only one set works, if any set works at all. And, but again, uh, that is something that is a genetic oddity and not design. That actually, her, uh, being a hermaphrodite or intersex, clearly goes against God's design because it gets into the way of the, their ability to reproduce and have children naturally. And you can see all that. So everyone is meant to be male or female, nowhere in between, one or the other. And you're going to be a man or a woman forever. So binary sexuality is actually an essential part of God's perfect and enduring design. We also know this because the creation mandate commands mankind to be fruitful and multiply. So this command is given in the state of perfection before anything falls, anything goes wrong, any sin or anything like that. It is reiterated in Genesis 9-1 to Noah 
And there we see that the creation mandate, again, is still important, that the, the whole world needs to be populated with people who uh, bear the image of God uh, with the, the purpose of them being worshipers of God, people that would expand God's kingdom, glorify his name. So the plain meaning of the command is to have biological children and raise them to love God. Right. The command can only be fulfilled by embracing a God-given sexuality. I'll hear people try to spiritualize the cultural mandate, the creation mandate, and say, well, I have spiritual children. And I'll ask them, how did those spiritual children come into the world? And then they'll have to say, by sex, because that's how people get made. Right. In other words, you're not making disciples of anyone unless someone at at least an instinctual level made people right? Obeyed the, uh, the creation mandate. There's no way around the creation mandate. And people uh, will try to do this little shuck and jive shell game with you, but it's all, it's all silly. So that's, that's part of it. Also the, uh, the fulfillment of the creation mandate requires both men and women by himself. It was impossible for Adam uh, to fulfill the command of God. Therefore God said that it's not good for the man to be alone. Uh, that's Genesis 2.18. The solution to Adam's aloneness didn't just uh, require um, another person. And I've actually sat in a PCA church with a pretty well-known PCA teaching elder where he taught, he was going through the book of Genesis verse by verse. When he got to this, he made it all about our need for community. Well, that is not really directly, that's an implication of this verse, but probably not in the way he meant it. Adam's problem had a solution. And God is the one that gives Adam the solution. And it wasn't a buddy to hang out with. It was a wife. It was a woman. And through uh, his partnering, complimenting, collaborating, working with his wife, he is able to fill the world with people that would give them that broader community. But community in God's creation first flows out of the Trinity into man and then flows into the world through man and woman working together. It's important to note that the only thing not good in creation was the temporary lack of binary sexuality. For a time, creation was monosexual. For a short period, it was, it was only masculine. And think of that. There was a time where creation only had men, and that was not a good thing. And so to perfect everything, there had to be two sexes, and that emphasizes the goodness and centrality of binary sexuality. Two more points. Uh, biblical binary sexuality in no way denies equality. Both man and woman equally bear the image of God. You see that right there again in Genesis 1, 27. Uh, it, they bear the, the image of God, uh, at least uh, in essence, in uh, equally. But how they manifest or image it out into the world has distinctions rooted in their sexual nature. But it doesn't deny equality. Uh, what we need to remember is equality doesn't mean sameness. And that's what you realize when you're talking to your feminist friends, your egalitarian friends, your androgynous uh, friends that call themselves complementarians. When they're talking about equality, what they're usually talking about is sameness. They want to make the sexes interchangeable or they want to blur them ultimately. And that's what they think equality is because they, they sense tension between male and female and they want to get rid of that tension. And they do that by destroying sexual distinctions. That's also a tool of the devil, which we spend a good bit of time talking about in the forthcoming book. The distinctions between the sexes are intrinsic, undeniable, and good. Uh, the biblical ordering of the sexes consists in the man being the head of the woman 
and the woman as a supporter of man. So that's Genesis 2.18 and 2.20. Headship for the man means the task of leadership and direction in marriage, church, and society. It accepts and requires that headship will be done in a dedicated, God-glorifying love, imitating Christ. Uh, The position of supporter for the woman means a loving subordination under male leadership uh, and a completing of the man by her special gifts as a woman in the context of building a household. That's that's what's going on right there. So in other words, uh, for creation to be complete, it needs male or female for man to achieve his mission. It requires mankind, that is. It requires male or female. And the task of filling the world uh, requires male and female. And the world that is filled with people is going to be ordered according to sexuality. So even at the most basic uh, level in Genesis, in the beginning, sex plays a uh, not just a sort of background Right, but it's a central part of of Scripture's teaching and narrative. Nam, what would you say? What what sort of thoughts you have on that? I think that people who say that Scripture whispers about sexuality or sexual sin, whatever they however they want to put it, um, especially when they're talking about sexuality specifically, they either have not, or they do not want to, or they are lying about having grappled with the way that mankind is introduced in Genesis. Like think about the fact that God gives this very specific, um, it's almost like a little poem when man is created. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Like why that last line, why would you need to put male and female? He created them. What is this? It's, God doesn't write things into his word that aren't significant. These are all God's words. So why is it that God includes this line, male and female created he them? What is the significance of that? Given that we all know, even feminists and most, even the most messed up people today know, but certainly people who received the scriptures originally knew that mankind is male and female. Everyone knows that. Why would you need to add it? So I don't think that most Bible teachers, uh, most of the preachers that we're talking about, including people like Jen Wilkin, who is indeed a preacher, most of them have not thought about this. Or if they have, they're lying about what they came, the conclusions they came to. They're lying about the fact that they didn't see the significance of this and that they um, don't, they, they just, they just want to gloss over it and pretend that God really doesn't call attention to binary sexuality as the very first thing that he does with humanity. When I hear them, where they treat feminism or egalitarianism like it's a, it's like a preference or a disagreement. <laughs> they, I could tell they don't understand. No, no, no. This is a very attack on the nature of what it means to be man or human. Modern language is a human, but we said mankind forever. Now, because of a bunch of sissy, you know, uh, changes in language, we're not, we, we use humanity. Like a few of the edits I made in our book last moment is uh, anytime I saw humanity and it wasn't awkward, I changed it to mankind. <laughs> so I was like, no, no, we're not going to, we're not going to bow here. Um, but they don't realize this is an attack on the very doctrine of creation. That's what it is. And I think they just don't know what they're talking about. All you got to do is read the Bible, you know? Right. And the reason that it's an attack on the doctrine of creation, it, it's not just an attack on the doctrine of man, but if we, if you look at um, another book that they almost certainly haven't read is Bill Mauser's The Story of Sex and Scripture. 
because that draw, draws out in very simple ways. It's, it's not a complex treatment of the topic um, by what I would consider a complex treatment of the topic, but it's a very simple and compelling treatment of Absolutely. the biblical symbolism that is involved with um, things like earth and the creation created distinction, um, the connection between women and the ground and wells and um, the, just the, all the you know, headship, all, all these biblical symbols, which are implicit in the text and which take the entire length of scripture to fully unwind and um, e- explain themselves. But I don't think that any of these guys have any concept of what that symbolism is and why it's there. They're not thinking in terms of symbol at all when they read scripture. They're they're one step above your kind of average newspaper exegesis, but that's really the level that it's at. It's it's mm-hmm. a very surface level reading of the text that isn't asking deep questions about why did God use this word? Why does God make this conceptual connection? Uh, what do these things actually mean? And, and what do they tell us about the nature of mankind itself? 100%. Second, sexuality is central in the fall and resert, uh, resulting curse of mankind. So God's hierarchy of authority is attacked by the devil in the fall. So God establishes himself as king over mankind, man as an Adam, as head over woman, and mankind, Adam and the woman, Eve, uh, together as rulers of all of creation. In the fall, part of the creation, that being the serpent, deceives the woman. The man then listens to the woman, and mankind ultimately blames God, right? So the fall is essentially a reversal of God's created order. God man mankind creation to creation mankind woman to man then both the gods it's a flipping of the whole thing so there is a very strategic attack on on the order now it makes sense that it's satan right satan's an angel he already got tossed down from heaven because he didn't respect his place he understands the importance of hierarchy and the uh, importance of design and it's important to understand that hierarchy is sex specific in it and hierarchy has to do, and this is where Inan's done some really good writing on this on the website and in some other in some of the newsletters. Is that it's important to understand that hierarchy is not an issue of essence as it is rank. There's something different about men and women, and their rank is attached to it. But in terms of overall value and, and cumulative ability, those are the same before the sexes. I want to be careful about saying that men are not essentially superior to women, um, because Again, the term superior is <laughs> ambiguous. Men are essentially superior in rank. In rank, that's so right. There is a sense in which we want to be careful to say not every woman has to submit to every man. Yep. But when you get a bunch of men and women in a room, what you will find is that in a well-ordered society, regulated by wisdom and righteousness, the women will have a natural difference to the men. That's right. So there is a natural superiority in that sense. But there are lots of women who are much smarter than lots of men. And Doug Wilson makes a really good point about this, um, which I think that a lot of men struggle with initially when they're coming to terms with the way that God made the sexes. They think, well, you know, if I am uh, an average man and I marry an above average woman, then it seems really strange for her to submit to me when she's smarter than I am and she's more skilled than I am in these areas. And his point is, well, yes, that's that's why God made people at different levels is that they would marry at that kind of level. It's not um, it's not an inversion or an upturning of the creation design. 
it's an establishing of various levels within that creation design. So at the, the average level, an average man marries an average woman. It would be generally a bad idea for an average man to marry an above average woman. But it would also be <laughs> a bad idea for an above average woman. <laughs> right. It would be yeah. a bad idea for an above average woman to marry an average man as well. And this is where you get the idea. Uh, you get um, ideas like the, the caste system and so on. It, it, it's a, a natural extension of it. it. It tends to pervert and twist it. But the general idea is there that there is a station that everyone has in life, um, a lot that you have. And you should work within that lot. You should always be seeking to better that lot. But if you have delusions of grandeur, then it's not going to end well. Delusions of grandeur never end well. Um, so what you need to see is that in sexuality is uh, central in the fall and the resulting, uh, resulting curse of man. So it's an attack on the hierarchy, on the, the design, rank, and all that. And sexuality is, again, emphasized in the fact that the curses – are sex-specific and related to the task associated with each sex. The man's curse is related to his work of shaping the world, Genesis 3, 17 through 19. The woman's curse is related to her work of child-rearing and the supporting of the man. So in essence, uh, man's work is in the world, in a field. Why do you think we call a vocation your field? What field are you in? Um, it, that's cursed. And the woman's work in the home, in, in the, the relational realm, the nurturing realm, the uh, feeding, strengthening, expanding of home, that, that part is cursed. So we can see that even the curse is sexual. So if you want to understand God's curse of mankind, the curse that Jesus died for, to undo, to reverse, uh, you, it, you have to understand sexuality. Also, the fact that male headship existed in the state of perfection is again demonstrated in the basis of God's cursing of man. God doesn't just curse man for disobeying in the eating of the fruit. He also says in Genesis 3.17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. So part of his sin, part of his failure was listening to Eve and doing what uh, she told him to do. Adam's sin is compacted by his abdication of male leadership. This is why, as Roman 5 makes even clearer, we fell in Adam and not in our original parents, right? Father Adam, not Mother Eve. So you can't understand the creation and you cannot understand the fall without tackling the major sexual component, which touches every major facet of it. I don't know what else. And I don't know you're going to bring this up in a minute, but. The fact that we fell in Father Adam is very significant because if you attack that, then that's going to have uh, an inevitable and extremely destructive follow-on consequence of saying that, well, male headship isn't really a thing, and that means covenant headship isn't really a thing, and that means the headship of Jesus isn't really a thing, and that means that he can't represent you, and that means that you're still dead in your sins. And that's why sexuality is a gospel issue. Exactly right. Sexuality is central not just to creation, to the fall, but also to our redemption and restoration. So the redemption of mankind is a result of sex. The, this is first demonstrated in the fact that the Messiah, the seed, will be the descendant of Eve. And so there's a big deal of names, right? So first she's just the woman. And then after the whole fall, 
Adam renames her mother of all living, Eve, right? So that's a demonstration of his faith that God's not going to destroy them, that they're going to continue to produce children, and one of those children uh, will be the Messiah. However, it also demonstrates demonstrated by the great emphasis that Scripture places on genealogies. God will bring the Redeemer into the world through mankind's obedience to the creation mandate. See, you get right to the beginning of the synoptics, uh, primarily Matthew and Luke, obviously. It's a genealogy of a bunch of people that made a bunch of people. I know this is a little hard for some people to understand, but people don't get made without sex. People are having sex. Men and women are having sex. That's the genealogies, right? The patriarchs are, are, are taking women and they're having babies and they're raising them up. And that's how the Messiah comes. So this reaches its climax in those uh, gospel genealogies. Now, also, redemption, the redemption of mankind will uh, be the result of obedience of a male head, like Nam was just saying. So this is first seen in a genealogical exam- uh, emphasis placed on sons through scripture. Uh, this emphasis reveals that at some level, they knew they needed a new Adam. Uh, and I, I think, and I, you know, people might disagree with me. What you have in Cain is when Eve says, oh, I, I have a man, right? We know there's also uh, sisters, right? We don't know when they came, we're not sure. But we know for, without a doubt, that the first man was Cain. And it's implied that she thought, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the seed that will make things right. Maybe this is the Messiah King that will return us to perfect uh, fellowship with God. It's, certainly- it's more than implied. I mean, why would she say that if that wasn't what she meant? Well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I haven't. Who can say why a woman would do anything? Uh, yeah, women are, you know. Uh, I mean, I think that is the implication, right? And I think that plays out. That I think that's a big deal in the genealogical lines through the rest of Scripture. And it, and it is interesting that that sets up more or less the battle between two seeds, the battle between two patriarchies, and is is a, is a really big deal in the whole of Scripture. But yeah, I, I do take that position, and I just don't know how hard I want to drive it. You know, I'm not a uh, hermeneutical maximalist like some people. You're not a James Jordan. No, that's not my speed. <laughs> it definitely gets uh, the the uh, neurological juices uh, moving. It certainly but, does. <laughs> but then you're like, is this is this getting crazy? I'm seeing patterns and patterns and chiasms <laughs> and chiasms. Yeah. Then the redemption we have through the new Adam weakens the effects of the fall and results in an ever-increasing return to the pre-fall um, created order. So this emphasis reveals that at some level they knew they needed a new Adam. So Romans 5 confirms that that they were right. Jesus is the new Adam, right? He is the new federal head. And this, again, shows the importance of male headship and, and leadership in a very clear central way to the gospel. So if anyone's claiming gospel centrality and downplaying sexuality, they don't get the gospel. They just don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't understand male headship. They certainly don't understand federal headship. Now, the redemption we have through the new Adam weakens the effects of the fall and results in an ever-increasing return to the pre-fall created order. So mankind's renewed hearts Increasingly desire to obey and honor God as Lord, Romans 10, 9. Renewed men increasingly desire to take on the initiatives as leaders in the home, church, and society. You see this in Ephesians 5, 23 through 33, 1 Timothy 5, 8, 1 Corinthians 16, 3. 
Also, renewed women increasingly desire to respond to male initiative as support in the home, church, and society. Ephesians 5.22, Titus 2, uh, verses 3 through 5, 1 Timothy 5.14 uh, through 15. We see that sexuality plays a major role in creation, in fall, and redemption, and ultimately in restoration. Because restoration is the um, mankind uh being the body being perfected. So Jesus, when he is resurrected, resurrected as a man, sexuality, even there is showing the ongoing eternal goodness of God's design in sexuality. The main point I'm trying to make here is that sexuality is central to the gospel. It's really that easy. Um, It's not up for debate. This is rudimentary. This is elemental. This is as basic as you can get. So a few more reasons why sexuality is central in scripture and should be central in a ministry. Uh, First, uh, scripture speaks frankly and repeatedly about incest, homosexuality, fornication, and bestiality, right? Speaks frankly about every sort of terrible sinful thing that you can imagine. So Leviticus 20 uh, verses 10 through 21, Romans 1, 26 through 27, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. Go read any book of the Bible and see how far can you get in the book of the Bible before the text of that book deals with some sort of sexual sin. So to say that scripture whispers about sexual sin is just absolute ignorance you know i mean i i I one day sat down and tried to get uh find a book where it didn't come up and i can't think of any where it doesn't come up certainly not in the new testament it's remarkable to me about the people who say that scripture whispers about sexual sin is that they're the same people who are jumping up and down and making an enormous fuss like blowing out of all proportion these claims of sexual abuse if sexual sin isn't such a big problem, why is sexual abuse a big problem? Exactly, right? They're not very consistent at all. Um, I might and, say that they are hypocrites and liars. <laughs> well, what's going on there is that no matter the veracity of the claim, they're very tempted to grab on anything they can use to say men are bad, right? That's the, that's the whole push. And thankfully, some of those things have blown up to their face because obviously there are such things as sexual abuse. We're against it. It's, it's, a, it's a violation of God's law. It should be punished to the fullest extent under the law of the nation and hopefully the law of God. But God's law also, in God's word, there's a way to actually bring someone up on trial and have proper witnesses and whatever. And these people don't care about that. The vast majority of the books of the Bible directly address a multitude of sexual sins and do so repeatedly. The New Testament addresses the nature of Christian relationships using familial language that uh, are sexual in nature. So 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, for example, do we as Christians merely relate as Christians? Well, not according to First Timothy five one through two, like we we're to relate to women as sisters if we're not married to them. So you see that there's a sexual component even there, and we're supposed to understand the distinction between men and women, and the distinction between brothers and sisters. It's implicit in it, and so even the way we conduct ourselves in the church is regulated by God's created order as it relates to sex. I think that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, and it's probably important to mention that when we say sexual, we don't necessarily mean in terms of um, a sexual relationship or attraction and arousal. We're, we're talking about 
relating to sex, relating to person's gender. We relate to women differently than to men. And the way that we relate to them in the church is as sisters. And that's that's something we've kind of struggled with in the writing of our book. And even this is that we understand that a lot of people see gender as a social construct. And certainly that is the history of that word. These days in common vernacular, gender has been collapsed from a social construct also to refer to the biological reality of sex. I don't know. I don't know if we want to say anything here, but when we talk about sexuality, sometimes we're just, we're talking about the biological reality. And sometimes we say gender, we're talking about the biological reality or the tendencies that spring forth from it. Well, we take a a holistic view like scripture does of the fact that if you have a penis, you are a man. And that means that there are going to be ways in which you act, which are according to that biological reality. And so to speak about sexuality is to speak about gender and to speak about gender is to speak about sexuality. They're intricately connected, but because of the fact that most of um, the the higher level, you might say the social functioning is what is usually referred to as gender. And to, to speak about sexual piety sounds confusing because people think it just refers specifically to sex acts. That's why we use the term gender. That's the problem. Moving right along. Male leadership is taught and emphasize explicitly and repeatedly through all of scripture. So Acts one twenty one, when they got to re, re, uh, replace someone, you know, they don't marry Magdalene or <laughs> none, none of them come up. It's Matthias, right? Even though that a lot of those women had been there for quite a bit, right? They saw a lot. And so it has to be a man. First Timothy chapter two, of course, and three, Titus chapter one, uh, male headship. Uh, we have patriarchs, not matriarchs. Right in terms of how the promise in the the line is generally traced through Scripture, that's not to say women don't matter, but the promises are the promises of the fathers, and that's a big deal. So male headship and leadership comes over and over again. People might say, "Well, again, that's accommodation." It was it was a a time where you wanted to accommodate people to you could get. You know, so they could understand better. Does Jesus seem like someone that uh, accommodates all the misunderstandings of the whole? No, no, not at all, right? He's King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Um, he wasn't scared of Pilate or Herod or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the crowds. When he has one of his biggest crowds in John chapter six, right? What does he do? He says, look, if you don't eat my blood or eat my flesh, drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. And they're all like, all right, man. I am checking out. (laughs) And then they all check out. And then behind closed doors, because disciples had a little bit of sense behind closed doors. They're like, Hey, um, Jesus, this is a, this is kind of a hard teaching. (laughs) These things you're saying, man, they're driving people away. It's a little crazy. And he's like, are you going to leave too? (laughs) You know, is this the sort of man that can't confront a culture? Is that what you want to read the entire New Testament and tell me that Jesus, Jesus only had male apostles because he couldn't confront? You know nothing of Jesus. You neither know the word of God nor its power, if you believe that. That's absolutely insane. Jesus is afraid of no one. Jesus bows down to no culture. He is the Lord of Lords. And he could have had female leadership if he wanted to, and he did not. And that's why 
Uh, a lot of these women writers are regulated to arguing about Junia or this or that little thing because the whole of scripture, the heart of scripture, the clear part of scripture clearly contradicts all their insanity that they're teaching. It's also important to point out that culturally speaking, female priests were by no means uh, an unusual idea. In fact, female priests have been a staple of pagan religions for a long, long time, the very beginning, in the same way that castrated priests have and homosexual priests have, because paganism and androgyny are intimately linked and being able to merge the genders, merge the uh, male and female principles, as it were, is one way in which paganism expresses the denial of the creature-creature distinction. I mean, that's an excellent point. I mean, often we forget that we're dealing with a Hellenistic culture here, right? This is a Greek culture produced by Alexander the Great's incredible conquests, and then the Roman Empire that inherited all that. So it's um, it's not a culture that's uh, that is uh, unaccustomed to women having some position of power or influence in the religious order. So it's not like Jesus and it's not just power and influence, but specifically teaching. I mean, what was the who is the oracle at Delphi? That's exactly right. Yeah, that's right. It's a woman. Now, lastly, leaders in scripture don't deal with sin in the abstract, but rather deal with the specific sins of an individual or a culture. So John chapter four, I'm getting ready to preach on that this week. Uh, I love it. Jesus is tired. He's thirsty. And so he stops at a well and sees a woman says, hey, give me a drink. She says, you're a Jew. What are you doing talking to a Samaritan? And he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask for the water, uh, which you drink, you'd never thirst again. And she's like, you don't have anything to get any water. And are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus keeps pressing. And she's like, give me the water, right? She's like, I don't want to come back here anymore. It's the middle of the day or she's hot. And then Jesus says, okay, I'll give you the water, right? And here's how he says that. He says, um, he says, go call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, yeah, yeah, you have no husband because the one you're married to now isn't your husband. You've been married like five times, woman. And then as people think, I think they misunderstand, Jesus was being merciful to that woman. She says she wants the everlasting water, the water which will never thirst again. And Jesus' replies to tell her that, um, well, go call your husband. I'll give you another example of this. The rich young ruler, right? Runs out, says, Jesus kept all the commandments. He said, all of them, all of them. Jesus says, okay, you lack one thing. Go ahead and give all you saw all you have, give it to everyone and come follow me. And then that rev- that revealed his point of disobedience, the point which he would not uh, bend a knee to Jesus, right? Food and follow him. Think about it. The, the rich young ruler could have been one of the guys that wrote a book of the Bible, had you know, had he done that, had he been uh, elected to do so, right? But he didn't. So Jesus, again, is going right to the heart of a rebellion, which in this case is that she's a fornicator. She's an adulterer. And, and scripture does that with the, the guy in First Corinthians. He's either sleeping with his mother or his stepmother, doing one of the two. And either way, um, by any convention, it's incest, right? And it's wrong. And and he says, he, he, he says look, these, these things aren't usually anything things that pagans talk about but i'm going to say enough here to say what i have to say and so we always see them speaking of sin not in general senses but actually tackling sexual sin in very specific ways it's not whispering at all it's actually it's actually quite 
what was what's the word for graphic at times, you know? And so this idea that scripture whispers and sexuality doesn't come up a lot in scripture, again, is just not not true at all. Scripture is often understated on sexual sin in order to be discreet because of the fact that it is a disgusting thing. Scripture does not want us glorying or reveling in its descriptions of disgusting things. But the fact that it treats sexual sin with a certain discretion doesn't mean that it whispers about sexual sin. It means that it speaks appropriately about sexual sin and often in very loud and clear ways. The main thing that we need to understand is that the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, is attacking sexuality um, because it's a central part of scripture. And the devil and those who are like him rebel against God and and hate any limitations put on them by a king, right? They want to believe they can be autonomous. They want to believe they can do whatever they want. They don't want any boundaries. They don't want any order. They don't want hierarchy. And what we're seeing these days that we live in is an incredible attack on the doctrine of anthropology, what it means to be a man or woman, right? primarily as it relates to sexuality, but that is also an attack on the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the curse, and the doctrine of recreation, and the attack on what is intrinsic to the leadership of the church and the ministry of the church when it comes to dealing with uh, any sort of sin that's sexual, right? These people are literally destroying Christianity. They're enemies. They're not friends. We shouldn't treat them as compatriots. Um, there should be the base level of decorum you give anyone. And that's it. These are false teachers. These are flatterers. These are liars. They're enemies of your very soul. And, uh, and why is it because, is it because, I don't know, they don't like not and I, they say something mean about us, <laughs> you know, some, some other screenshot taken out of context. No, it is because they hate God's word and they contradict God's word. And we must take every thought that contradicts Christ. We must take that cap- uh, captive. And we have to do that at a cultural level. And, and at, at its heart, it's good to be a man, was to help men be men. But our passion is the gospel. The reason we even care about this is that we've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the gospel, through the, the, the finished, perfect work of Jesus Christ, by which we have been reconciled to God the Father. We're no longer slaves, but we're sons. And what we're seeing happening right now isn't just an attack on manhood, but is a, a very attack on, on the gospel, and it must be resisted. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Uh-huh.